0: From Mark 1, 9 through 15. In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven: You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe in the gospel. The word of God. Please be seated. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus' ministry, but we thank you for the gospel accounts. We thank you for the message that you have for us. We pray that you would open our hearts to hear uh, what uh, Nick would bring to us uh, and speak to our hearts according to our need. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Good morning, church. It's good to see you all glad to be back this week. Uh, Do open your Bibles and keep it open to Mark chapter one. We're not going to be venturing out too far out of this text. Mainly, I'm going to be just alluding to a lot of other texts that help give clarity to what Mark is talking about. And, you know, especially after what Scotty prayed for, I am so incredibly grateful. You know, it's I'm grateful for the spring. First and foremost, just because I don't really like winter. You know, I don't like the cold. I'm, I'm a Georgia boy that does, really does like the heat. I'm perfectly fine with summer and it being summer all year long. But I do like the seasons here. So I'm incredibly grateful for that. And, you know, with the situation that is going on in Ukraine, it just really is a moment for us to think about as Americans how blessed we really are. We do want our country. We want to see our fellow citizens come to know Christ, and we want that reflected in our government, seeing Christian values being exposed. We don't want babies to be murdered, but it shouldn't surprise us that the world acts like the world and that our government does not espouse the values of Christ. Sometimes we do need to be grateful for what we have. We've been given salvation in the church, and the if I am remembering correctly, and this was the early church situation in first Thessalonians, Paul's request is that we live at peace among all men and that we thank God that we're able to be at peace with all men. So we have the freedom to worship our God. We're not like in a situation in China where we're having to hide and fear for our, our very lives. We're not in a situation, uh, Like in Ukraine, where there might be the freedom to worship, but war threatens the opportunity to worship. And what we have this morning is both the freedom to worship our God and opportunity. And that should make us a thankful and grateful people. And we also need to be thankful for the fact that we've been given the word of God. We've been given a history of all that Jesus Christ has done to save sinners. A knowledge which, if we understand this gospel, if we believe what Jesus came to do and believe that he is able to save us, we have the promise of eternal life. Sometimes we think that if we were transported back in time and were with Jesus, then our faith would be increased. That if we were like the disciples Getting to witness Jesus preaching week by week, day by day, even spending time with him as Jesus prayed to his father, that then we would really trust him. Then we would be dedicated followers of him. But when we read the gospel accounts, we should realize and humble ourselves to realize that's just not the case. The people who were with Jesus were confused about who he was. They saw great power come out of him. They saw that he was an authenticated messenger of God. But they didn't know how to connect all the dots. Their faith was oftentimes frail and weak. And even those who were seeing Jesus's ministry, not everyone was convinced that he was someone to be trusted in. The Pharisees are constantly at war with him, trying to undermine his authority and seeing him as a threat. And even in the gospel of Mark, the whole lead up of the gospel of Mark is getting to chapter eight. When we see that Peter confesses, Jesus is the Christ. Something that you are told as readers of Mark in the very first verse. And at the very end of the book of Mark in chapter 15, verse 39 We see that the centurion soldier proclaims that Jesus is the son of God, the very first human character to do that. And yet you're told that in the very first verse, right when you open up your Bible to the gospel of Mark. See, history by its very nature is highly selective. The thing that happened with the apostles, the disciples, the Pharisees, is when they saw Jesus, they had tons of information coming at them. And the thing is, is with our sinful minds, sorting through that information, piecing it together, being able to focus on what really matters is actually really difficult. In fact, if we're going to look at a history about our day today and the significance of the Ukrainian war, it's probably going to take about 50 years before a good history comes out because it's gonna take time to sort through all the information, sort through what's important and what's not to really understanding the events that are happening in our day. And that's what we get in the Bible. That's what we get specifically in the gospels. We get God's perspective on history. We get God's perspective on what's important. And here, what we're going to see is what's really important to know about Jesus before his ministry ever begins is to know that he is a king, a king who is able to save sinners. That's what Mark wants you to know right from the outset. He wants you to know that Jesus is the God-sent king who is able to save sinners. And Mark is going to do this in his summary form, in his introduction, we, haven't, we are still in the introduction of Mark's gospel. And he's going to do it by painting some pictures. We're going to see his baptism and all that goes on in there. His temptation and all that goes on. And then we're going to be given a summary of Jesus' entire preaching ministry. His, me- his message summarized in just a sentence to give you the essence of what Jesus taught. That's what we're going to look at when we get into this text. So the first thing that you need to know, first of all, the thing of greatest importance when it comes to asking the question, who is Jesus? Who is the king that they're waiting for? Kind of already said it. The most important thing when we're talking about the king who's come to save sinners is to know who is this king? And let's look at who this king is, starting at verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Nazareth is a small, insignificant town. Nazareth is actually such a small and insignificant town that it does not get a mention in the Old Testament at all. It doesn't get mentioned even in the Talmud, which is a Jewish document written about 200 years after the New Testament was written. It's a small town from the middle of nowhere. Where we were left off last week is the fact that what John was sent to do was to announce the arrival of the Savior, pointing people to Christ, preparing their hearts, knowing that we are sinful people. and If we're going to be prepared for Yahweh, the great God of the Old Testament, to actually save us, We need to turn from our sins and renew our heart after God, preparing for the greater exodus, an exodus out of the tyranny of Satan and his dominion and his power. So what Jesus does is he comes out of Nazareth, some insignificant town. And what's kind of striking here is that all Jerusalem has flocked to John. Not everyone's being baptized by him, but everyone's interested. Everyone's waiting. And in the first century, the Jewish world was very excited and very focused on the coming of the Messiah. And something should strike you as you read throughout the gospel, of Mark, is if everyone's looking for something to happen, how come they miss it? If everyone's looking for the Messiah to come, why does everyone not know, notice when he comes up? What we see happen is John gets, uh, Jesus gets baptized by Jesus. And we're given a picture, a behind the scene picture of what happens in his baptism. In Jesus' baptism, we get to see who Jesus is. You've already been told that he's Christ and the Son of God. But Jesus, when he comes on the scene, we're given a picture of how we know that. It's really important to ask ourselves, you know, when we are preaching the gospel, in general, we should not say, believe in Jesus, and then not be willing or able to point to or tell them who this Jesus is. It'd be like me coming and saying, you should vote for Robert to be the mayor of Powhatan. The next question that you should ask me is, who is Robert? When I show up at the ballot box, I don't even know the guy's last name. How am I going to vote for him? Who is Robert? Is he a trustworthy guy? Is he a good guy? Does he actually know what he's doing? If you just pick some random Robert, if I don't tell you who Robert is, of course you're not going to trust him. Of course you're not going to follow him. Of course you're not going to vote for him at the ballot box. And how much more so do we need to know the reason why we think, why we believe that Jesus Christ is the Christ, the, his title, and why he's the son of God? Look at, with me at verse 10. This is him, Jesus. He's just been baptized in the Jordan. And as he is coming up out of the water, while he's coming up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. What Jesus saw. And we know even John the Baptist saw it because First John, uh, or not First John, John chapter 1, verses 32 and 33, tell us that John the Baptist witnessed this occasion. What did he see? He saw the sky above him being torn, torn open to, God, to viewing God's throne room. The heavens are being torn open. There's only one other time in Mark's gospel where this word is used. It's Mark chapter 15, verse 39. I've already referenced it once before. Listen to this. It's going to be the same word torn is going to be used here. It's the only other time in Mark's gospel. Jesus uttered a loud cry. He's on the cross and he breathed his last And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. If it's torn from top to bottom, who's tearing it? God is tearing it. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way, he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man is the son of God. Mark is connecting the end of his gospel to how it began. Jesus's ministry as the Messiah began with the heavens being torn open in a proclamation that Jesus is the son of God, a conclusion that wouldn't be reached by any human being until the very end of Jesus's life. And if we look at this voice, we don't know who's speaking by any sort of identifier in our text. If you look, it just says a voice came from heaven. Whose voice is this? Well, we know whose voice this is from the content of what's being said. He's identifying Jesus as his beloved son. In Isaiah chapter 42, if you really want to know the type of Messiah Jesus is that Mark is referencing throughout his gospel, read the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. That gives a clear and detailed account about the suffering servant, who even in chapter 9 of Isaiah, we see this kind of fuzzy picture of this Messiah is the wonderful counselor, mighty God. Of who could this be said? In Isaiah 42, verse 1, by the way, the second reference in just a couple sentences that Mark is referencing the book of Isaiah. This is what God says about the Messiah, he says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 42 is what the father's saying. He's saying that this person Jesus Christ of Nazareth, a nobody from a nobody town, that this man is his son. I want to pause for a moment just to say that the word Trinity does not appear in your Bibles. It does not appear anywhere. And yet we believe this truth that God, the one true God, is made of three persons, one in essence, equal in power glory that those persons those three persons are equal in power and glory why do we believe that well it's the same reason why we use the word bible first of all the word bible is not in your bible yeah we use it all the time as christians and every also cult leader talks about their bibles the reason why we believe in the trinity is because that's how god has chosen to reveal himself If I was talking to Steve Donahue, Steve Donahue would have the prerogative of telling me who he is. If I came up and told him who he is, I'm probably going to be wrong because I don't know what goes on in Steve's mind. You have the prerogative to tell me who you are, and God has the prerogative to tell us who he is. And who is God? God is the Father, He has a son. And here we see a separate distinguished person from the father speaking and the son being baptized is the Holy spirit who descends upon him like a dove. We already talked about the fact that baptism has multiple things going on and that the emphasis in John's baptism was repentance, but that it also symbolized a greater exodus. It also symbolizes like verse Peter 3 says that we, if we are in the ark of Christ, that we're saved from the flood of God's wrath. And right here, what do we have descending upon Jesus? A dove. Dove showing the peace of God, descending upon him, bringing peace, a proclaimer of peace among all nations is what Isaiah 53 says about Jesus. Jesus is baptized, and we see Who this Jesus is, who this king is, is none other than the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. That's an amazing thing. The reason why it's so important, the very first question you need to ask when, if you have never heard of the Bible, if you've never read through the Bible, the very first thing you should ask of whether or not you should be a follower of Christ is who Jesus is because who he is will dictate what he's able to do. And what we see is that he's the very son of God. If that's true though, why is Jesus receiving a baptism, a washing from sins of repentance? Why is the son of God who knows no sin going through A preparation for Israel to be ready to receive their Messiah when he is the Messiah. There's a very simple, the simple way of answering this question. It's not a very simple answer, but the simple way of answering this question is it's the same exact reason why Jesus died on the cross. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. The fact that we are sinners and that we have actual sins on our tab in Adam's and our own, that those things have merited the death penalty on our lives. And every one of us in this room will receive that death penalty. But Jesus had no sin. Why was he able to die? Not just did he die, but why was Jesus able to die. Isaiah 53 says this about this exact occasion. Talking about the Messiah, verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Jesus Christ throughout his life suffered, not for his sins. Jesus Christ suffered on the cross and died, but not for his sins. Verse six explain that all we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all." Verse 10, "Yet it was the will of God to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see; uh, he shall see his offering, and he shall prolong his days. Out of anguish, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, Jesus Christ, make many to be accounted righteous. When Jesus died on the cross. He was not being crucified for his sins. He was being crucified for the sins of his people. When he was baptized, he was not showing or representing the sins that he needed to turn from, but he came as our representative. You know, what's interesting is even after Jesus is baptized here in Luke 1250, Jesus says that he still has a baptism to undergo. That he's looking forward to a baptism of undergoing the waters of God's wrath being poured upon him on the cross. That is what we are being saved from. Who is Jesus? He's the second person of the Trinity. And he's our representative. Jesus is both God and man. In his human nature, he is our representative, living the life that we should have lived and dying the death that we deserve to die. And in his his divine nature, he's reconciling us to the Father, to himself, a sinful people whose sins do deserve to be punished. That's what we have in Jesus. That is who Jesus is. But knowing who Jesus is is not all you need to know. Talk is cheap. We need action if we are to be saved. And we noted, verse ten, that the very the very first thing that happened was not the voice coming out of heaven, but the spirit descending upon him. The very meaning of Jesus's name. We usually say we don't usually just talk about Jesus coming to save us. We usually talk about Jesus Christ coming to save us or Jesus uh, Messiah, the Messiah, that name, the significance of that name, the significance of the word, the title Christ to Jesus being attributed to Jesus is that he is the anointed one. Kings in the past, like David were anointed with the spirit, but the Holy spirit was going to come on a son of David to anoint him in a way like no one else. And that's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus, by right, came to be the Messiah of his people. and his inauguration date, his coronation as king happens right here at his baptism. He's inaugurated as the Messiah, and we see the very first thing that he does is that the Spirit, verse 12, the Spirit, the one who had anointed him, has empowered him, immediately drove him into the wilderness to do what? Verse 13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and that the angels were ministering to him. What's he doing? What we see in the temptation is a picture, a summary of jesus and what he is able to do as the spirit empowered messiah what he's able to do for his people the main point there's lots of different things that we could get into first of all if i i referenced earlier that history by its very nature is highly selective this temptation narrative is the very thing that i think most demonstrates the highly selective nature of history Because if you've read Matthew or Luke, you'll know that he's left out a ton of things. Why has he left out Jesus confronting the devil and how he was tempted? The three temptations that were put upon him. He was, we see that he was attended to and served by angels. But in Luke's, in, Mark's, in Matthew's gospel, we see how he was attended to by angels. The devil actually confronted him and said, I know that you have the power to change stone into bread. You're hungry, feed yourself. I know that you have the power to jump off a cliff and have angels, the angels who are serving you, catch your feet so you don't strike the stone. Why is Mark being reductionistic here? Because he wants you to see his point. He's giving you an introduction to who Jesus is. And he chose to put the temptation here, and he's choosing to highlight being tempted by Satan. And he's using a verb form that kind of shows that that's the focus, and everything else is different details. There are some interesting details that he was there 40 days in the wilderness with wild animals and angels ministering to him. Those details kind of show us the wilderness. It could remind us of a lot of different things. The fact that Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, hence 40 days. It could remind us of Adam in the connection that Luke connects with the first Adam being in the garden and being tempted and failing, but Jesus being in the wilderness, a desert, and succeeding in being tempted by the devil those little details of the wild animals mark is the only one who points that out that detail out in the garden adam and eve were surrounded by domesticated animals they had dominion over the animal realm perfectly but here they're wild and he's attended to by angels those are peripheral details though to the fact that he's being tempted by satan it's told in the present tense, you know, so you know that I'm not bluffing. It's the only one there that's told in the present tense to focus on the vividness of this event. This is the one that he wants you to see. What's significant about Jesus being tempted by the Satan? Especially since Mark doesn't even tell us if he's successful. What's the significance? See, if you had read... Matthew, and Luke, and we didn't have Mark's gospel, you might be tempted to think that Jesus, his confrontation with the devil ended in the wilderness, that he was confronted three times, went home a failure, and never again confronted Jesus. Mark's gospel tells us something that is obvious if you look at Jesus' life. His whole ministry was marked by being tempted and attacked and confronted by the devil and his messengers, demons. Mark focuses throughout his entire gospel on demons and how they are racking every individual that there's so many people who are being oppressed by the devil and his minions. Peter in uh, Acts chapter 10 talks about the fact that Jesus, that God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. And this word here for tempted only appears four times in the gospel of Mark. One right here in reference to Satan, but the other three times he is not being tempted by Satan, but he's being tempted by his minions, in particular, the Pharisees. The Pharisees come to tempt Jesus, or test Jesus in Mark chapter eight, verse two. In Mark chapter 10, verse I think it's verse two as well. And uh, Luke, uh, sorry, in Mark chapter 12, verse 15. First time is Satan, the next time are the Pharisees who are antagonistic and attacking him and testing him throughout his entire ministry. Does that surprise you, by the way? That people can be used as instruments, either if they're Christians, instruments of God doing good or instruments of Satan doing what's evil. Even Peter... The man who proclaims that Jesus is the Christ, the very next moment is used as an instrument of the devil. How? After he professes that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus then immediately tells them what Christ came to do, to suffer and die on the cross. And what does Peter do at that point? Jesus, don't do that. May it never be, may nothing ever happen to you. And Jesus responds to him saying, "Get behind me, Satan." That was yet another test, something tempting him to not be the suffering servant that Isaiah makes the Messiah out to be. We know who he is. We know that he's able to confront the devil himself. First John 3:8 says that the reason why the Son of Man came was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to save sinners, Ephesians 2, out of darkness, out of oppression to Satan, and to bring them into the kingdom of God. That is what our Savior is able to do. Knowing who he is explains this ability that he has. But who our king is, is a king who's able to save, sure, but is he willing? Is Jesus willing to save sinners? We know he's able. We know by His the fact that he's our representative, the God-man, he is able to save, but will he? And that's why we get at last verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. What did Jesus come to do? He came to die on the cross. Yes. But it's been said by many different people. So I don't know exactly where this quote comes from. But when, G- when God had a son, God's only son was a preacher. Jesus in, Math- in uh, Mark one thirty eight says, and he said to them, "Let us go on to the, the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. Luke 4:43 says, "He told his disciples, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose." Jesus is not just delivering any news. He's delivering good news. Good news that all who trust in him will not be put to shame. Good news that you who are oppressed by Satan, trust in Christ, turn from your sins, believe on him, and you will be saved. Jesus's preaching ministry started after John was arrested, and I feel like especially during times like these, kind of thought this is besides the point, but I think understanding the situation of the world, it makes a, it should have a better, better, a bigger weight on us. The fact that John was arrested, then Jesus's ministry started. John was pointing to, his whole life was pointing other people to Jesus, the Messiah coming. And once he came, John's ministry was over. And how did the world then treat John? It arrested him. The same thing would happen to Jesus. He'd be using the same word. Jesus said that he would be handed over to the Pharisees, that he'd be handed over to the kingdoms of darkness and that they would crucify him. Mark chapter 9, 10, 14 and 15, he all uses this word, arrest, about himself. And he also warns his disciples in Mark chapter 13, that they too, when he dies, that if they came after me, they're coming after you. They will arrest you as well. Those are the three contexts we have this word. That should be a warning to us, not to be surprised, that the devil Yes, Romans chapter, uh, Revelation chapter 12, the devil has been defeated, but he has been kicked out of, in the picture that's being painted in Revelation, that's been kicked out of a, a position of authority where he could dominate the nations. But now he prowls around the earth like a roaring lion, like a dragon seeking he, who he may devour. That's us. That's why we need to trust in Jesus to be our king who's able to save us. But that's kind of besides the point of this sermon. So forgive me for that. Jesus came proclaiming good news of God and saying, and here we get in verse 15, the summary of his message. The summary of his message was fulfilled is the time near is the kingdom of God. Is that kind of interesting to you? It's actually kind of just building off of what John's message was. The kingdom is coming. The king is soon to arrive. Jesus's message, his good news that he offered the world is actually a little bit different than us. And we shouldn't preach the good news like this. Because Jesus was saying the good news is that the time The time of the Messiah coming and reigning is fulfilled now, that we can say. But here Jesus says, it's good news that near or at hand is the kingdom of God. It was near because the king had arrived. And throughout his entire earthly ministry, the king was ruling and defeating the devil. But he wouldn't establish his his church, his kingdom until Pentecost. To the world, we now proclaim not the kingdom is near, but the kingdom has arrived. Jesus has already defeated death. The time that was fulfilled is now past. Redemption has been accomplished, and the Holy Spirit is now applying it to sinners who trust in Him. The kingdom has come. It might not look like it. The devil's still roaring, he's still after people. Sin. It's still happening in the world. People are still dying. And yet his kingdom has come in seed form. And the only thing that we await now is for the day of his judgment to arrive. That's the next moment on the calendar of redemptive history, which is good news to us, but is bad news to the world. That's the summary of his message. And if you noticed, oddly enough, Jesus's message of good news was all about himself. That would strike us as really odd if it wasn't for the fact of who he is. He is the subject of his message. He is the object that people are to trust in. But why did I say this king who is able to save is willing to save? It's because they expect that he responds, uh, that he uh, has out of people. He says, "Repent and believe in the gospel." Friends, we need to be extremely clear about the, what the message of the gospel is, and we need to be extremely clear about how people are to respond to it. Acts chapter two: the people say. They're cut to the heart. They see that they've crucified the Messiah, the Lord of glory. And they respond to him in Acts chapter two, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do in light of this? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, not of repentance, but in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see the parallel before they were being baptized, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now in light of Christ and his redemption, they're baptized into the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins with the promise that they'll receive the gift of the Holy spirit. Unless you think that he's there, he's talking about being baptized and repent where's faith. Well Jesus um Peter preaching the same man preaching in uh, Acts chapter 10 verse 43 talking about the gospel all that he Jesus came and did he said to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name You see the reason why we need to be clear to people that if you want to be saved, repent and believe is because true belief turns from sins and turns to God. Mere profession. It's easy to say, and anyone can say, I follow Jesus. But it's another thing entirely that the same Holy to figure out whether or not your faith actually was given to you by the Holy spirit to see that, That faith, that heart of stone that was removed and given a heart of flesh, that same heart that believes in God and all his promises also is given a repentance. One that turns from sin, finds it odious to our nostrils. And one that then turns to God, sees that we're not just turning from sin and reforming our life, but we're to turn to God and embrace Him. Faith and repentance, while we can talk about them as separate things, faith being the instrument of our faith, the thing that we use to grasp on to the message that saves, and repentance is the thing that is marked by a heart of gratitude, one that loves God and believes in Him. But in all practical purposes, when we tell people, What must you do to be saved? Let's not deviate from what Jesus says people must do to be saved. Repent and believe the gospel. Not that your repentance can earn any favor of God. If you think that, then you've missed the message. The message that we are to respond to is that Jesus did it all. And all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain, but he... Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, will wash it white as snow. The fact that he preaches this way reveals the fact that he is willing to save. He does not preach the good news to those that he knows are elect, to kind of get ourselves into some Reformed theology here. He does not preach in such a way that he is excluding some. He preaches to the world, the good news. He offers it to all telling them, if you will turn from your sins and turn to God and trust in his Messiah, you will be saved. Jesus preached good news. If we're going to seek to apply it to our life, what does that look like? Well, why don't we start at the end? We need to preach the gospel to other people, and we need to be clear about what the message is, and we need to coherently explain to people how they are to respond. We need to be concerned about this because I looked this up just last night that currently, I don't know how accurate the statistic is, but 166,279 people die every day. If you don't know the gospel, learn it. It's a simple message. Jesus came, died on the cross, and is rose again, and he is the king who you are to submit to. Simple message. And the response is to believe in that king to save you. Learn it. Get it down pat. Express it to other people winsomely. Seek to persuade others That's what Jesus would have his people to do. Speak to even enemies of the gospel. I was just reading in Titus. Speak to them with gentleness. Even enemies of the gospel, we need to speak to with gentleness. But also, we need to realize that who Jesus is is important. And we need to present evidence of this. We don't need to say, Jesus Christ died on the cross. And rose again to save you. And he's the king. And then leave it there and not seek to know anything else about Christ. We need to seek to know who he is. And you know what? When you do that, when you investigate for yourself who Jesus is, your faith will grow and grow and grow. And you'll be able to bear witness to other people. And you should constantly be seeking to grow in your ability to bear witness to other people why they should follow Jesus. Mark gives us evidence. He says, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He could have finished his gospel by saying, this is a biography of Jesus. He came, he lived, he died, believe. He doesn't do that. And neither should we. Mark seeks to explain to show how we know. How do we know that he is God and man? How do we know that the Trinity is a belief that we should hold? How do we know that Jesus is able to defeat and rescue sinners, how do we know that he wants to save us? Mark explains it. We need to as well. Christianity is grounded in reality. Christianity is gra- grounded in reality of what actually happened. And what we get in the gospel of Mark is a clear grounded historical picture of who Jesus actually was what he was actually able to do the devil was not a problem for him to deal with and also the fact that he desired and wanted to save sinners the good news is that God sent a king who is able to save sinners that's good news That news should make us happy and joyful. That should be such good news to us that we want to share it with the world. Let the gospel move you. Let the gospel fill your heart, be gracious, have grace towards other people, and have gratitude flow out of your heart to others and not deprive them of the only hope in this world, the only hope of salvation, the only hope of escaping hell. Don't deprive anyone of that. And when you fail and you think back about opportunities where you haven't shared, where you haven't told others, where you haven't loved others enough to share the good news, remind yourself of the good news. The good news is not how faithful you are to God. The God is not... The gospel is not how faithful you were to keep all his commandments. The good news is that God has accomplished your salvation. Trust on that. Lean on that. Hope in that. And point others to hope in that as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us your holy word. Lord, we... We pray that our only hope, our only comfort in life and death is that we are not our own, but that we belong both body and soul in life and death to our faithful Savior. Lord, we confess with the Heidelberg Catechism that he has paid fully for all our sins, if we belong to him, with his precious blood, that he has set us free from the tyranny of the devil, so that we do not no longer have to be bound and dominated by sin in our life we've been given the resources and the holy spirit to turn to you and to turn away from sin and i pray that you would help us all to grow in that help us to grow and have the desire to read your word more often be grounded in reality, and see history, all of human history, through the lens that God has given us in his word, to discern truth from error, to discern what things are most important to focus on, and to realize that all of human history, it's been so long, filled with wars, and yet, amazingly this Jesus of Nazareth coming out of the middle of nowhere was your sent son. And that his coming and his arrival and his death and his resurrection is the very pinnacle of history that we are to point others to. Lord, we thank you for your word because even if we were there, we would not have believed that we would not have submitted to that. We needed your word to clearly point us to that. And heavenly father, we, are so grateful. We're so grateful that you have called us to worship you, that we're able to sing your praises, even after this, to continue in our worship after hearing your word. We thank you that you've given us that freedom in the United States of America. We pray that you would renew that freedom in Ukraine, that you would protect them, that you would hold them and that your spirit who fills all Christians would give them strength and courage and save them from whatever disaster is going on around them. We pray the same thing for those that we often forget about in India, in China, and throughout the world who know you and are suffering for that knowledge. We love you, Lord, and we praise your name. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.